This is the sidebar for the week of June 30th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Declaration of Independence, uh, signed on July 4th, 1776, contains the entire theory of American government at the beginning of its second paragraph. Our guest this week is Jeffrey Rosen. He is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. The Declaration of Independence is part of the framework of America's democracy. He offers his perspective on the document that still shapes our country 240 years later. Jeffrey Rosen is the president and chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center. You look out to Independence Hall. So take us back to July 1776. As we prepare to celebrate America's birthday, how did the foundation of our democracy come about in Philadelphia on July 4th? The Declaration of Independence, uh, signed on July 4th, 1776, contains the entire theory of American government at the beginning of its second paragraph. It's fair to say that the promise of equality that was offered in the Declaration is implicit in the Constitution and finally codified in the Bill of Rights. So really, let's read that sentence and parse it and understand how it contained the framers' basic ideas about American government. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter and abolish it and to institute new government. What did the framers mean by an unalienable right? Uh, Thomas Jefferson read Locke, John Locke, and Francis Hutcheson, and Jean-Jacques Berlamachy, and the theorists of the Scottish Enlightenment. And these great theorists believed, as the framers did, that we have certain rights that come from God or nature, not from government, and that we're born in a state of nature with these rights that can't be alienated or surrendered to government when we move to the state of nature and create a civil society or a government. So what are the unalienable rights? Well, the quintessential one is the right to worship God or not according to the dictates of conscience, because the framers believe that our religious beliefs uh, are the product of reason. And as creatures of reason, we can no more alienate or surrender our powers of reason to the government than we can alienate our, 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 uh, our essence uh, as human beings. So the rights of conscience were unalienable. So were rights of free speech, the right not to be deprived of liberty without due process. And then the framers went on to say that uh, government is a social contract. We alienate temporary control over certain of our basic rights in exchange for an equivalent, namely greater security and safety of the rights we've retained. And whenever government threatens those rights, when it becomes destructive of those rights, as Jefferson says, it's the right and duty of the people to alter and abolish it. So the right to alter and abolish government, the right of revolution, is itself an unalienable right that can't be surrendered because it's the way that we ensure that government maintains the social contract that makes the uh, entire system possible. So that's basically it. And what's so exciting about the Declaration is to see, uh, first of all, that Jefferson didn't write it 
uh, on his own. He was a genius, but he wasn't claiming to be original here. He had by his side George Mason's uh, Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776, which was uh, which Madison had by his side when he wrote the Bill of Rights uh, after the Constitution was drafted. And most of the states at the time had bills of rights, and Jefferson was uh, cutting and pasting among these basic ideas of natural rights that were contained in most of them. Uh, listeners can go to the Constitution Center website, constitutioncenter.org, and find this great interactive constitution where you can click on the revolutionary era state constitutions and see their connection to the Declaration of Independence and the connection of the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution itself. That's why it's so uh, exciting to see how the ideas Uh, expressly codified in the Revolutionary Era declarations are uh, declared in the Declaration of Independence and finally codified again in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Well, let me follow up on your earlier point with regard to the signing on July 4th, because up until that point, there had been a sense in the country that there could be some sort of a compromise with the King of England and the British government. Then Thomas Paine published his pamphlet, Common Sense, and that was really a turning point in the mood of the country. Yes. uh, Paine also, drawing on this natural rights tradition, explained the people's duty of revolution. He explained the king's threats against our basic liberties as uh, threats to the social contract itself. And that, as you say, changed the tone of the country. It turned uh, loyalists uh, to revolutionaries and led the men, and they were all men who, at the time who came to the Continental uh, Congress to pledge their lives, their uh, freedom, and their sacred honor to uh, revolution itself. We mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. The majority of the Declaration in some ways picks off uh, off of uh, Thomas Paine's notion, and it's a bill of particulars against the king. It's the ways in particular that he has violated the natural and common law rights of the people. Uh, it's, it's a long list, so I won't read from all of it, but it starts with he has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. And then it actually calls out some of the rights that ended up in the Federal Bill of Rights for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. The Third Amendment prohibits the quartering of troops, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. The Fifth Amendment uh, prohibits deprivations of liberty without due process. Uh, and, And then it concludes this really, really important list. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers. Uh, and so forth. So it's just a list of oppressions. Uh, Jefferson says we petition for redress in the most humble terms. Again, in in, in the spirit of pain, sort of setting out the grievances to a candid wor- world. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury, and that's why the prince is called a tyrant. And the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress declare their right of revolution. And as you well know, Congress actually voted on July 2nd to declare independence from Great Britain in a letter that he wrote to his wife, Abigail John Adams, believing that the second day of July would be the most memorable. We celebrated on July 4th because that, of course, is when the Declaration of Independence was approved. But you've been a student of history and focused on our founders. Who are some of the unsung heroes from this era? Well, I think one of the greatest would have to be 
uh, George Mason, first of all. I, I mentioned him as the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights that both Jefferson and Madison had by their sides when they wrote the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Uh, another is James Wilson, who was a uh, delegate to the Constitutional Convention, and he, more than Madison himself, came up with the idea that we, the people of the United States as a whole, have the sovereign power rather than we, the people of the individual states, as was the case at the time of the Declaration and under the Articles of Confederation, or the King in Parliament, as was the case in uh, Britain. We have this really exciting new exhibit at the Constitution Center showing James Wilson's original drafts of the Constitution, the very first time that pen was taken to paper to uh, draft out the Constitution. Uh, listeners can find the texts of the Wilson drafts online at uh, treasures-constitutioncenter.org, and you can compare the evolution of the texts and see how the ideas that were sketched out in the Declaration about the proper balance between the executive and legislative authority are played out in the Constitutional Convention in a kind of debate between Madison and Wilson about who should uh, rule. Uh, should the, the president be elected by the legislature or by the people? What should the balance between the large and small states be and so forth? Uh, so th those are uh, two heroes that I would start with. For you personally, when you walk through Independence Hall and you have been there on countless occasions, what goes through your mind? What, what do you think? My kids, like everyone else, are listening to the room where it happened uh, the, from from the Hamilton musical. Um, but even before hearing that memorable song, it's impossible not to be struck by the fact that this was the place where it all happened. Both the Declaration and the Constitution drafted in this same room. It is uh, of stately proportion, but it's intimate enough that you can actually imagine the group of uh, men uh, 30 or so or 40, debating, talking to each other, looking uh, each other in the eye. The fact that the deliberations of both the Declaration and the Convention and the Constitutional Convention were secret is really important, too. And you kind of, on a hot day, there's air conditioning now, but it's, you imagine the windows being closed uh, in the summer and the delegates talking in the room and then going to taverns to debate face-to-face, -face, you think the magnitude of the questions they were debating, whether to declare themselves to be traitors against the king, to risk their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, the, the courage that that uh, took, um, and then these agonizing compromises in the Constitutional Convention about the status of slavery in the large and small states. But, but the fact that, it, that they were human beings, plain, honest men, as Rick Beeman says in his wonderful book, which I recommend to listeners, debating face-to-face, -face, but they also were, I mean, you have to call them geniuses of, of sorts. How is it possible that these extraordinary documents so candidly expressing to the world these basic and unalienable truths were, were, were drafted by practical politicians? Uh, something uh, was in the air in that room and at the time that passed through these men and, and created these documents that have inspired people seeking liberty around the world. So it, it really is wonderful, and I hope uh, visitors will come to Philadelphia, go to Independence Hall, stand in the room, look around, see, touch uh, the, the railings, smell it, and imagine that you were back there. And then, of course, come across Independence Mall to the Constitution Center and see where the ideas 
uh, declared at Independence Hall are being worked out today and debated by people of different perspectives uniting us around this great document of human freedom. Could we have had one without the other? The Declaration of Independence in 1776, 11 years later, the U.S. Constitution? No, the, the, the Declaration was, was, after all, a legal document uh, dissolving uh, allegiance to the king, even more than a political uh, document, although it did galvanize the uh, revolutionaries to rebel. Um, but it was necessary to assert the right to alter and abolish government in the Declaration, and that same right would be asserted by the Constitutional Convention. So remember that the Constitution was illegal according to the ratifications procedures specified in the Articles of Confederation, which required the unanimous consent of all states to change uh, the Constitution. And asserting this unalienable or natural right to alter and abolish government, the framers of the Constitution uh, said that we can have a new ratification procedure. Um, we don't require unanimity, and that's because the right to alter and abolish government precedes government and is a, is a natural right. So I think unless the framers had gotten into the habit of reverting to the state of nature and asserting their natural rights of revolution and declaration, they wouldn't have had the courage or the precedent of exercising the same right at the time of the Constitutional Convention. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, agreeing with you, saying that the founders were geniuses, getting it almost right. The one issue they didn't get right, slavery. Why? They couldn't agree. The interests were too profound. The, the, the South said, we won't sign. We will not participate in this new union unless we can maintain this wicked institution that we now come to see as immoral and a violation of natural law. But that was not obvious to all at the time, although it was to some. So uh, they made a series of practical compromises, which looked to us ignoble today. The three-fifths compromise, which stained the Constitution by counting enslaved people as, as three-fifths of a person for purposes of the census and enumeration. But those compromises were necessary in order to ensure a framework of government that would ultimately grow and would come to fulfill its promise. That's another reason that, decorated, that the Chief Justice is absolutely right about the, the genius of the framers, the stain of, of slavery but also the fact that Jefferson, after all, had promised in the Declaration that all men are created equal. The, the Constitution betrayed that promise with its compromise on slavery. Uh, but then Lincoln was able at Gettysburg to promise a new birth of freedom that would make the promise of the Declaration of Reality. And after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution uh, ending slavery, guaranteeing equality, uh, and the right to vote to African Americans began to make that promise Reality. As you know, the current political environment is often toxic, bitter, and partisan. So are there lessons you think Washington can take from what happened in 1776 and later in 1787? Yes. It's really important for people who strongly disagreed to talk to each other face-to-face. -face. There was no lack of partisanship, as you say, at the time of the framing, the division between North and South over slavery was as bitter and virulent as any of the divisions that we're seeing today. And yet these delegates were able 
by committing themselves to thoughtful, reasoned deliberation and to agreeing to talk to each other face-to-face to reach compromise. Uh, if you try to identify the Madisonian principles of the, of the Constitutional Convention rooted in the Declaration, it's the necessity of, of thoughtful deliberation, compromise, and also the rejection of direct democracy. Jefferson and Madison were not populists. They didn't believe that the people should take flash Twitter polls or one-off referenda. Brexit would have been unimaginable to Madison or Jefferson because they thought that only through thoughtful deliberation over time could the people's representatives channel the thoughtful will of the people in a way that would preserve liberty and the rule of law rather than threatening it. So they saw a tension between populism and constitutionalism. They thought that only by separating powers and filtering the direct expression of popular will could the rule of law and constitutionalism be maintained. And those are some profound lessons for today. This is an often asked questions and impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it to you anyhow. If the founders came back today, what would they think about what they created? As it happens, I know I keep giving these plugs, but the Constitution Center has a really exciting new initiative uh, that's setting out to answer precisely that question. What would James Madison and the other framers think of our current presidency, Congress, courts, and media, and how can we resurrect Madisonian values of public deliberation today? So we've just we launched on April 13th. Viewers can check. Um, our great friends at C-SPAN, uh, Steve, covered the uh, conference. So you can check it out on April 13th. It was called Freedom Day. It was just a remarkable uh, group that convened to begin to answer that question, which we'll be answering over the next three years. George Will gave a really powerful keynote address, and he said that the framers would be distressed by the rise of populism. And he said that uh, this was his take, but he said American history is a clash between two Princetonians, uh, Madison and Woodrow Wilson. And he said that Madison would have been distressed by the populism that Wilson uh, and Theodore Roosevelt introduced in the election of 1912, where they insisted that the president was a kind of steward of the people directly answerable to them, um, in contrast to uh, my hero and the subject of my next book, William Howard Taft, who said that the president could only do what the Constitution explicitly authorizes and believed in filtered rather than direct democracy. So we can disagree about precisely what they would have made of our current uh, vexations, but I think George Will was correct to say that they would have felt that our current system allows the direct expression of popular will more than the framers anticipated and thinking about maintaining the necessity of accountability to the people, um, as C-SPAN does so beautifully, while also allowing people to have sober second thoughts uh, is uh, a great challenge for all of us. I'm not uh, just flattering the podcast to say that I think C-SPAN, like I hope the NCC, the National Constitution Center, is a model for that kind of thoughtful deliberation and invites citizens of different perspectives to express their views um, in a kind of uh, thoughtful, civil forum, and then people can make up their own minds. So here's to that kind of Madisonian deliberation, and uh, I think that makes me optimistic about our future. We thank you for that. We should point out that the April event uh, and all of the events that we've covered at the National Constitution Center on our website at cspan.org. Before I ask my final question, how many books have you written, by the way? Uh, This past one will be number six, I think.
Um, it'll be out next March. It's part of the American Presidents series uh, that Arthur Schlesinger and now Sean Wallace are editing. Readers may see that they have those cool covers and they're short. But Taft is the last volume in the series. Everyone else has written their contributions, and I've been lollygagging, so I wrote this thing in six months because I, I just didn't want to be beaten by the guy who's writing about <laughs> President Obama. It'll be, it'll be out in March, and I'm really excited to make the case that Taft is our most constitutional president and presidential chief justice, and he viewed all issues as president in constitutional terms and is just a model for what a constitutionally-minded president looks like. And he enjoyed the, the Supreme Court much more than the presidency. He really did. His dream was to be chief justice. His wife and Theodore Roosevelt made him be president, and his revenge was to approach each question as president like a judge. He was a former judge. He refused gifts from the Japanese government because he thought they violated the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. He thought that the president couldn't send troops uh, over the border with Mexico because only Congress could uh, authorize that. He wanted to put Theodore Roosevelt's entire program of executive orders on firm constitutional grounds by having Congress authorize them. And in fact, he filed more antitrust suits and withdrew more environmental lands uh, in one term than Theodore Roosevelt did in two. And then finally, he achieves his dream. The only president to go on to the Supreme Court becomes chief justice, establishes the Supreme Court as a truly co-equal branch of government, uh, builds the Supreme Court building, uh, defends judicial independence, and repudiates the popular referendum and the initiative and all the things that the threats to judicial independence that he had repudiated as president. So uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit told me for the book that William Howard Taft is the most underappreciated constitutional figure since George Mason, who refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't contain a Bill of Rights. We talked earlier about George Mason and his heroic role in inspiring uh, Madison and Jefferson, and I'm inspired by Judge Ginsburg's notion that Taft is Mason's heir. Can't wait for the book to come out. So here's my final question. I'm not going to ask you how much you paid to see Hamilton uh, on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to ask you, because you mentioned uh, it, it's such a popular Broadway show, has that really opened the window for a new generation to understand the foundations of our country? It has. It's just so exciting uh, to see my kids and kids across America memorizing the lyrics, asking questions about Lafayette, about the King, about Jefferson, and coming to the Constitution Center and coming to Independence Hall to see the room where it happened. Um, my generation grew up on a different musical, 1776, which I still love and recommend to viewers. Um, now uh, Hamilton is just the way in for uh, learners of all ages, but it's thrilling to show how music and art can make the founding relevant and immediate and dynamic and can connect it to people of different backgrounds and different uh, perspectives um, to make them want to learn more. It just is, it's a huge service, and it's also a really, really inspiring show. In the shadow of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Jeffrey Rosen, who runs the National Constitution Center, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Happy birthday, uh, Declaration of Independence. Happy July 4th. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.